Through its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. The American Southwest encompasses portions of three deserts, the Sonoran Desert, the Chihuahuan Desert, and the Great Basin Desert. The region is often characterized by its climatic conditions, such as low annual rainfall and seasonally high temperatures, and its ecosystems reflect these conditions, with people, plants, and animals having adapted in ways that have shaped Southwestern culture. However, climate change is threatening the region, with scientists projecting average annual temperatures to rise an additional 3.5 to 9.5 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. While drought conditions and heat waves are already common and severe, they are expected to become more frequent, intense, and longer-lasting. These projections extend beyond U.S. borders, reflecting increasingly dire changes in deserts around the world, despite the fact that deserts are often overlooked in climate change conversations. Scientists predict extreme heat events with temperatures exceeding 132 degrees Fahrenheit will become frequent, for example, in the Middle East and North Africa in the latter half of the century, which will disproportionately affect women and girls responsible for water collection and management. In times of scarcity, women and girls will be expected to find alternative water sources, which means facing dangerous, physically demanding daily journeys that place them at increased risk for gender-based violence and loss of their educational and livelihood opportunities as well as they spend more time accomplishing these tasks. While people living in desert regions will face growing challenges as a result of their environment, development into desert regions will also disrupt local ecosystems, destroying wildlife that plays an important role in the functioning of deserts writ large. These and other challenges demand proactive conversations to build awareness and generate effective solutions across the globe, from California to Texas, from Saudi Arabia to Libya, and more. In this conversation, we will hear from two women implementing innovative strategies that respond to the changing needs of both deserts and the people that call them home. Please join me in welcoming Brittany Kendrick, co-founder of Hydronomy, and Jenny Gill, Executive Director of Desert X. Thank you so much for joining us today, both of you. And Brittany, I'm going to turn to you first. Would you get us started by overviewing what you do at Hydronomy? Great. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in today, everyone. Peace and blessings. I'm Brittany Kendrick. I am one of the three co-founders of Hydronomy. Um, Hydronomy is a sustainability water technology company. We are focused in addressing the global water scarcity and insecurity problem that we face every day. Um, some of the, the, I would say this all started uh, back in high school for me. Um, I am one of the uh, lucky few that attended a public high school that um, is located on the south side of Chicago. It was very uniquely focused on agricultural curriculum. So um, it's a very small high school, graduate with about 120 kids. Um, but that was probably the first time I was exposed to any type of alternative, typical ways of learning. So understanding how our ag 
industry affects our everyday lives. We had about a 72 acre farm that uh, on the back part of the school where we were required during summer um, time that we would go and pull corn and sell them in the farm stand out of the school's um, marketplace perhaps. And so I, I particularly went into ag business um, for my last two years of schooling. Um, and focused on how do you matriculate funding, how do you create business opportunities, marketing, et cetera, strictly around food insecurity, more or less, right? And so I carried on into my undergraduate experience at St. Louis University um, and partake in several different type of water innovation challenges as a civil engineer student. Um, not too far-fetched from what I was learning in high school, um, Ag relies on water, relies on sun. So it was just like, oh yeah, this is this is typical of what I should get involved with. Um, but played a very instrumental role of um, fusing business that I learned in high school along with like entrepreneurial engineered solutions while I was an undergrad. So I was a part of a couple of different teams that explored alternative water sourcing for passive agricultural purposes in addition to which which has led into drinking, bathing, cleaning, all-inclusive um, water supply options. Um, I also attended New York University, which I, which is where I, I would attribute the monumental point of me recognizing like all of this experience and work that I've, I've attained thus far is a, a surmounting to this moment of building a solar-powered atmospheric water generator. Um, that serves primarily as an alternative water source for cleaning, drinking, bathing, all type of sources without the need for pipeline integration or without the need for an energy input. So um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but uh, hydronomy is, is meant to be a portable, autonomous source of water for every person on the world. Thank you, Brittany, for sharing the origin story. We will indeed dive in more just in a moment. But before we do that, Jenny, thank you so much for being here as well. Welcome. Um, would you briefly introduce us to Desert X? Thank you, Aubrey, and uh, thank you all for tuning in today. My name is Jenny Gill. Um, hola, buenos dias, uh, or buenas tardes, depend on where you are today. I am executive director of Desert X. We are a not-for-profit based in Palm Springs in California within the Sonoran Desert. We organize a biennial exhibition that takes place in the Coachella Valley, which is within the traditional Cahuilla people territories. Um, the Cahuilla are the original stewards of the land on which Desert X takes place. So since 2017, we've organized four exhibitions in the Coachella Valley. And what we do is that we invite artists from all around the world to create new site-specific uh, works in response to the desert environment and its communities. Our exhibitions are all free and mostly outdoors and take place on very different sites from vacant lots to nature preserves, empty storefronts, abandoned gas stations, um, and areas where you wouldn't just normally go, whether you were visiting the Coachella Valley or lived out here. Um, and areas where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily find a large scale contemporary art um, installation. Um, so the exhibition really become, becomes a map of the Coachella Valley. Some call it a treasure hunt. 
Um, and the sites really contribute to pushing the boundaries of exploration in a very, almost in a very traditional land art sense where the journey becomes almost as important as the work itself. Um, so by inviting these artists that come from um, all over the world to work in these very vast spaces, we are allowing for uh, very experimental platforms for artists to explore. But at the same time, we realize that we create new audiences for contemporary art. Um, since 2017, which was our first exhibition, we've welcomed over 1.7 million visitors to our exhibitions. And uh, this is mostly um, visitors that come within our own communities or close by communities, but also we've been attracting a lot of international visitors um, to this specific region of Southern California. Thank you so much for that introduction, Jenny. You know, something that I feel like knowing a little bit about both of you and the work that you do, a common thread here is place-based or community-based inspiration. So I have a question for each of you in that regard. The first one uh, is for you, Brittany. You mentioned your high school and how that influenced your time growing up, but how did your childhood in Chicago specifically inspire your work today related to water availability and water quality? Yeah, so when I was a child, um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, what is a, a neighborhood that's called Inglewood, very low income, crime, high neighborhood. Um, but I remember as a child, my parents, and I remember it was on the Chicago Tribune, which is a newspaper, um, blasting how the water uh, that was servicing that neighborhood was um, detected to have lead contamination. And I remember my parents, like, very in a very privileged position, were like, we're not drinking the tap water anymore. Um, we're only going to use it for bathing and for cleaning purposes. But from here on out, we're going to be... Um, drinking and cooking with water from this water dispenser that my parents like found at a garage sale. And then we would make weekly weekend trips to Indiana, which was like maybe like a 30 minute drive to go pick up gallons of distilled water, lug it back home, fill it up in the, the dispensary um, large five gallon container and use the water for that week. Right. Um, and it, it, this is nothing in any equivalence to some of the young girls that I had to interact with down in Bolivia who were trekking miles and miles up a mountain just to capture and collect spring water from a spring expression. But it was an equivalence of what we had to do in order to access water. And so that like memory remained fixated in my ethos of like, man, like, just to gain access to clean drinking water or uncontaminated lead water and how much of a, a time as much as a distance you have to go to access it is just a, it, it's not right it's not right and it's not fair considering that there is no alternative water source that my parents could utilize right and it also made me think about like well what about like my neighbors like they're using the same water and they aren't able to travel miles and miles to go pick up gallons of distilled water, mineralize it so that we can have healthy drinking water. It's just, it's not right and it's not fair, right? So that's, I would say that is where that has stayed on my mind and I can 
connect the dots on how relatable this experience can be for other cultures and other countries around the world. Thank you so much for sharing a bit about your story and that inspiration. Um, Jenny, I'm, I'm going to turn to you now. I wonder if you can explain how Desert X really fosters conversations and dialogue about the conditions of desert locations, desert environments, or even indigenous communities that call these locations home, and why this is so important, at least to the mission of your organization. Yes, thank you. Um, that's a great question. Um, you know, when we invite artists to come to the Coachella Valley, a lot of them um, come here for the first time or have ever only heard about, you know, Palm Springs and golf courses and uh, poolside cocktail parties uh, or the Coachella Music Festival. And so when they come here, they, you know, they really discover, you know, not only new landscapes, uh, but they really get to engage with the realities of the people who live here, right? The political realities, the social realities, the cultural context um, that will eventually shape the artist projects that we present. And, you know, the, um, the interesting part is that, you know, the Coachella Valley is a very active uh, place of migration and has been for many years. We're very close to the Mexican border. Um, it has a, an extremely rich indigenous history. Um, it has many active and prominent communities like in, um, the LGBTQ community out here in the desert or the military community. And, you know, to top it all, um, you know, there's this overwhelming almost presence of this continuous visibility of the geological time uh, that is around us in the desert everywhere you look at any time of the day or night. So, you know, so it is very important to bring artists out here and to bring artists from other communities to come and make these connections because they have this very powerful ability to tell stories, right? And to tell stories in a way that many of us um, and many uh, different and diverse people can connect to. So by, you know, by bringing artists to their site specific projects here um, on sites across our valley, we are, we're, you know, not only creating this platform for artists to experiment outside of museum spaces and brick and mortar spaces like galleries, but we're also um, enabling this dialogue and, um, you know, this dialogue that starts with interacting with an art installation, but also interacting with other people and interacting with each other. Can you explain how the art installations are site specific and site responsive? Like how, how does the desert environment climatically, geographically, culturally influence even the logistics, but also the art behind the projects? Yeah, so, um, yeah, um, so our artistic director, Neville Wakefield, always says that um, the curators don't curate the exhibition. In reality, the show is curated by the desert. Um, I'm not sure the curators will agree, but, um, you know, the bulk of it is that by working outside and outside of these white spaces where uh, we can control um, you know, the different elements in which artists um, work in, but also in which audiences, um, you know, approach artworks, you know, we immediately enter 
um, an exhibition space where the climate or the environment and the culture of the space become, um, you know, the central agent um, of the exhibition and of each of the projects, uh, you know, on an engineering level, we have to take uh, topography into account, um, wind gusts into account, very high wind. Um, on a cultural level, we have to take neighborhoods into account and communities and uh, help, you know, and ask them to uh, respond to specific projects and to respond to, um, you know, where better to place them. On an environmental level, uh, you know, we work with agencies to mitigate the impact of the projects, but also of audiences. And we work with, um, you know, different agencies to educate audiences about the fragility of our desert environment and the specific flora and fauna um, that is not always visible unless you're pointed at uh, to it or you're really looking at it. So, um, you know, all of that, you know, including um, even um, legal agencies and administrations and cities that work with us for permitting aspects or regulating um, the spaces and how we access them. Um, the Projects are very, you know, much impacted by, you know, all these aspects of the environment and they end up changing and evolving a lot from the initial ideas uh, that are proposed, uh, usually around their first site visit and um, the 1 to 2 year period of development of each project. Interesting. Well, that's really, it's fascinating to hear sort of the nitty gritty about about how this this works and comes comes together. So, so Brittany, nitty gritty question for you. Please explain in maybe layman's terms, how exactly hydronomy's water generator works. Yeah. So the scientific name of our technology is called a solar powered atmospheric water generator. Um, essentially, we take solar energy and a battery that powers our work. Uh, device that is patent pending converts air into a liquid form, and then that liquid is then disinfected and purified and stored within a, a, hold, a holding container or a reservoir so that patrons, um, residents, anyone who would like to access the water by the press of a button, they are dispensed this clean, purified water that was converted from air. So that's as lame as that I can get, but if I can get really in the nitty gritty details, I'll spare you those for intellectual property reasons, as well as I don't want to bore you, but <laughs> uh, simply converting air into drinking water. Wow, sounds almost too good to be true, to be honest. Uh, so, so let's get into some tangible example then. I, I know that Hydronomy will soon launch a pilot installation of its water generator at a church in Harlem, New York as well as a five-unit project in parks and recreation facilities in Corpus Christi, Texas. So what do you hope to measure or demonstrate or achieve with these pilot projects? Yeah, so uh, if you take a look at our website, we have two different products that we're displaying. I'll, I'll reiterate that both devices have the same core technology of converting air into liquid for cleaning, drinking, and um, all-inclusive use. The only difference between the two is our hydrator, which we call is like our off-grid water fountain device is intended for parks and recreational spaces, whereas our air well, which does not have the dispensing mechanism for water bottle containers, um, it is intended for single family household uses that water that is generated from the air and is purified can be deposited directly into a household's existing 
water storage container or hot water tank, typically, which is found in the US. Um, the strategy or the methodology of what we're carrying out, and we're currently, I think the last time we spoke, Paris, um, it was in planning phase of deploying the device in Harlem, uh, New York, but we are currently underway in the deployment. I'm flying to New York tonight to go finish out part two of four of the deployment. But the, the initiative is that one, we familiarize in, and also create comfortability with any user that is um, within the public space by allowing them to interact and play with the hydrator, which is our off-grid water fountain, which is underway, currently being deployed in Harlem and anticipated to move down into Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, in a very uh, domestically in the US, um, we're finding that a lot of people are either inundated with um, the lead contaminated lines or just don't have the means or the accessibility or have the, the, the means or accessibility to purchase privatized water that does not undergo the same amount of um, scrutiny or um, due diligence of reviewing the water quality sampling as the EPA. They're leaning on to a device or a technology like ours for it provides portability, accessibility, as well as high clean water standards that's in, in, in compliance with the EPA safe drinking water standards. Um, it's a great opportunity to just get people used to something different. Um, and as a civil engineer, my, my job is to make sure that you have safe, reliable utility infrastructure. And so a part of this device is that the intent behind this device is that you as a homeowner or everyday person one, become knowledgeable of where your water comes from, but then two, understand that your water doesn't always have to come from the, the river or the lake or a well or any form of something like that. It can come from air. So how do we divert some water beyond these very finite and um, sometimes exploitive resources that we have right now? Thank you so much, and, and congratulations on the advancement of those projects. Can't wait to hear how they go. Um, that's very exciting. Um, you know, Jenny, turning back to you, something that, that you mentioned a few times in passing that really struck me um, is the importance of how artists who are selected for exhibition at Desert X, the importance of them visiting the Coachella Valley and um, conducting place-based research to inspire their artwork. Can you talk about um, what their research typically entails, how they engage with communities to, you know, take some learning back home to design their, their pieces? Yes, thank you. Well, um, you know, the research is very uh, different depending on each artist and their background and their practice. Um, and it mostly involves meetings, um, you know, visiting different uh, either uh, local artist studios, uh, engaging with different community members, with uh, community activists, and, um, uh, you know, kind of it also in Southern California, visiting the Coachella Valley means spending a lot of hours in a car. And uh, discovering the landscape um, from a moving vehicle or a move and stop vehicle. So all of those, um, um, you know, all of those together and uh, really, you know, we have a great team here on the ground who steers the research, uh, depending on each artist's uh, interests. 
Um, some artists are specifically interested in um, hearing from uh, indigenous communities. Some artists will be interested in discovering more about our agricultural communities in the east side of the valley or our um, LGBTQ communities are, you know, there's uh, such a variety of um, of aspects of this valley and it's just and it's a lot richer the, you know, the moment you start digging in, uh, you just discover that you, you will never um, end your research. So we are, are quickly approaching the end of our conversation today, but I do want to get to, I think, at least one more question for each of you. Um, so I'm going to um, revert back, Jenny, with a follow-up for you first. I know that Desert X has actually expanded to include exhibitions in the desert of Saudi Arabia. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the impact that your organization and exhibitions have had in the Saudi community, especially for Saudi women artists. Right. Thank you for that question, Aubrey. So um, our exhibition in Saudi Arabia, you know, very much like our exhibition in the Coachella Valley, um, you know, starts from the same parameters, which is inviting artists from around the world to um, explore uh, site specificity on a new platform and, you know, pushing the boundaries of experimental spaces for contemporary art. And um, the other counterpart to that is that by doing that and bringing art to non-traditional spaces, um, you know, it we are creating new audiences for contemporary art, new spaces for uh, dialogue and for ideas to circulate and for stories that um, most of the time are either uh, because they're not told or uh, voices that are not heard or um, stories that are invisible, um, you know, come to the surface and are shared um, in a very broad way. Um, in our exhibitions in Saudi Arabia, we always work with an important number of Saudi artists. A lot of them are women artists, um, and a lot of them have worked uh, not only in our exhibitions in Saudi Arabia, but also presented works here in the Coachella Valley. So um, it's very much about you know, creating these spaces for uh, dialogue and for conversations to happen, exchange of ideas and new connections. Well, considering what we do here with Innovation Station, we obviously see the value in exactly what you're describing. So uh, congratulations on that expansion as well. Uh, Brittany, I wanna, I wanna turn back to you now um, and, and continue on this sort of people-focused side of the coin. Um, I know that Hydronomy has developed and is, is developing a, a workforce development program that seeks to train at-risk populations in skills that are useful both for Hydronomy system maintenance, but also, you know, jobs of the future writ large. Can you tell us a bit more about the program? Sure. So we just graduated our first 11 um, Climate Tech Corp members. Um, this opportunity or this workforce development was um, put into place in collaboration with Communitas America, which is based in New York City, in addition to Block Power, uh, which is a, a, um, a startup that focuses on electrifying commercial and residential households. Um, we collaboratively have continuously have conversations about, you know, with all this new, novel, innovative technology, green technology, blue technology that's coming into place, is are we contributing to, it's being reflective about, are we contributing to the next 
racial and socioeconomic disparity of our future by building technology that does not include or incorporate or, uh, or is inclusive for the employment as well as the skill training of marginalized populations. And so knowing this um, from the very beginning of beginning hydronomy, it's always been an initiative that we've been mindful of, right? And so a part of the way that I like to describe the company at its ethos is we have three-pronged efforts. One, addressing the water scarcity and security from a policy standpoint. Two is addressing the water scarcity and security from a technology standpoint, which is what we're doing right now as we speak. And then three is around this workforce development piece. How are we training our future climate tech workforce to build, to assemble, to construct, to operate and maintain such useful and critical infrastructure of our future? Um, and this is just from, you know, learning from the lessons of within the civil engineering discipline that a lot of our utilities are old and aging and decrepit, primarily because we haven't trained the future generation. I was just looking at uh, a stat right now. I was preparing for a grant application for the company and was looking up the stat on what is the uh, degrees awarded uh, rate for civil engineers. And it has been declining for the past 10 years. So if we look at like, and we're not growing the skill set in the workforce within a very high professional expertise, then how do we expect that, you know, the future generation, the technicians, the operations, the managers, the, the maintenance workers are even capable of, of maintaining such large, expensive infrastructure. So I think it's important that you know, we, we, we're intentional about who we're growing and then how are we dispersing the wealth allocation of such skill set, whether it's by the, the time attainment of the skill set, as well as the employment or values that are gained from such um, opportunities. Really encouraging that that's on your mind as you are part of building the technological solution. So um, that's really uh, generally encouraging to hear. So thank you for sharing that. And as we wrap up today, I do want to ask you both one final thoughts question. And that question is, what is one tip or best practice that you would share with audience members seeking to turn desert-related or desert-adjacent challenges into opportunities? So, Jenny, I'm going to start with you, and then Brittany will give you the last word. Sure. You know, I would say involve the creative communities. Listen to the stories. Have the difficult conversations. You know, empower the communities in the desert environments. Um, you know, the solution to desert challenges um, should include these voices and these stories, and perhaps some of the solutions will come out of this creative dialogue. Um, also, you know, just stay hydrated, cover your head, wear sunscreen, um, and all of those uh, very important tips um, um, when exploring the desert. Thank you so much, Jenny and Brittany. Um, I think that in a very symbolic way, we think about the desert as if it is of nothingness. And so um, I agree with what Jenny is saying, like engage the artists, engage the creatives that can come and interplay and see and imagine and vision things that we may never have even thought of. Right. And so I think my mom, who was an artist, she oftentimes like she's like, oh, my God, you're like the science creative version of me. And I'm like, what? But nevertheless, this is her speaking life over me and in a sense that 
um, we have to imagine things in places that may not, that may be perceived as if there's nothing and there's no value, right? And so be courageous in your pursuits, um, be, be a nerd about it, be investigative and follow your nose for there are things that we can imagine where we don't necessarily um, expect. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.